Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today we are joined by Lindsay Freeling, the CEO of the O'Brien County Joint Economic Development Corporation, which she joined in 2009. Since 2011, Lindsay has facilitated the creation of over 2,500 new jobs and over $280 million in capital investments in a county with a population of 30,000. Lindsay spearheaded the efforts to make the Northwest Tennessee Regional Industrial Center a select Tennessee certified site and participated in tourism efforts that have resulted in 250,000 families and individuals visiting Discovery Park of America annually. Lindsay is the president of the Tennessee Economic Development Council and past president of the Tennessee Chamber of Commerce Executives. In 2015, she was named as one of West Tennessee's up-and-coming Top 40 Under 40, and in 2016 was chosen for the 2016 Southern Economic Development Council's Chairman's Award. Lindsay is the proud mother of two children, Allie Kate and Houston. Good morning, Lindsay, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Good morning, Mary. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be talking with you on this beautiful morning in October. Yes, the weather is crisp and people are out and enjoying it and not sweating to death anymore. (laughs) That's right. Here in the South, you never know what you're going to get, but uh, it was brutal for a little bit. Sometimes you can get all four seasons in a day here too. So This is true. And people think that's hyperbole. And I say, come live in Tennessee, and then you will know the truth of that statement. Yep. Sweaters in the morning, tank tops in the afternoon. That's right. And then it could snow. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, Lindsay, let's begin. And will you tell us about the first job you ever had? Ooh, first job. So I was 14 and my dad took me to Pioneer and I got a job working in the cornfield, cross-pollinating corn in the summer because that was really the only place that would hire somebody that was 14 years old. So I think I made like $5.15 an hour back then. What a summer job. I assume it was a summer job? Yes. And I actually did it, ended up going back for three summers because I made friends and actually enjoyed the work and I I still have a a weird sensation when I smell a cornfield these days. (laughs) What was that first experience like for you? Did you get a lot of direction? Were you just, what was the work environment like? Because I imagine a lot of it, you're working on your own. You're out actually doing the work in the field. Yes, we were out in the field on our own. But yes, we did have, we didn't have direct supervision all the time, obviously, because there were probably, I don't know, eight to 12 of us, you know, kids back then working but we depending on what time of the season it was like you would go up and down the corn row and and put what they call a shoot bag on the little bitty bitty tiny bud of the corn that was starting to come up and then as the season went on you we actually had knives and we would cut those off later on in the summer and um, put bags over the top of the pollen so it was kind of you had to be self-directed, I guess, in a way, and you had to be trustworthy because you had to just trust that whatever you told us to do, we were going to go out there and do it because we we outnumbered the supervisors. So where did you go on from there? After I graduated high school, I put in an application at um, CBK, which Mr. Kirkland owned it. It was a home decor wholesale company. And I really thought I was big then because I was 18 and I was getting what I thought was my first real job, which in reality, it absolutely wasn't even my first job. So I worked in the warehouse in what they call pick pack. So you just had an order and you went down the line and you picked things off of the line and boxed them and taped them and sent them on their way. 
actually, no, I went to fix up first. It was where when items would come in and they'd need to be reboxed, we would um, redo however the shipment would come in from whatever country it came to, to rebox it, to be packaged and sent out differently. And actually only did that for a week because they had these entrance tests that you had to take when you got a job there. And apparently I scored high on them, but I mean, again, I was right out of high school. I was accustomed to taking tests and there was a lady that was going to be going on leave for the summer. So they were like, would you like to come work in the human resources department? And I was like, hmm, let me think about this working in this hot warehouse from five o'clock in the morning till three, four or five in the afternoon or an office job eight to five. You know, it took me about two seconds to say, yes, I'll do it. But <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into in human resources. So you went from there into human resources. And how long did you spend in HR? I did that. I was only supposed to do it for the summer because she was going to be back. And um, they ended up keeping me on part time through my first semester of college. So I did it for, I don't know, eight months or so, I guess, and helped with orientation and putting books together and all those fun human resource type job duties. What did you major in in college? I got a business degree with a concentration in management information systems. So I did like, that's more of the networking side of IT, but I had to take a couple of computer science classes and networking classes. And when you were in college, did you imagine for yourself that you'd be working for the Chamber of Commerce? Absolutely not. I didn't know what it was. (laughs) So you've been at the Chamber for since 2007? Is that correct? 2009. So 2009. I'm working on my 15th year, but I was doing community development work prior to this. I did a lot of things with Main Street and Obine County Fall Fest and Boys and Girls Club, just volunteering throughout the community. So what made it so that you decided you wanted to work for the chamber and you've been there for quite some time now? I, I've just found that I really love community service and investing in people, but kind of behind the scenes, because I mean, at my core, I'm an introvert. So dealing with people is something that takes extra effort for me, but I love helping people. And I found that like working with Main Street and the Boys and Girls Club and all these other things, I was helping people, but I was kind of doing it behind the scenes, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so when the opportunity came open at the chamber, I was like, well, why not just get paid for all the things that I'm doing and not getting paid for by volunteering? So it kind of just right. When you look over all the different places that you've worked and the different places you people you've worked with, what is the best work experience you've ever had and, and what made it so good for you? Wow, that's interesting to think about. Like the... I don't like to micromanage people and I don't like to be micromanaged. So really this job is the best of that because I work for a board of directors and they're all gainfully employed in their careers. So they don't spend their time time working to try to tell me what to do day in and day out. So for me, this work environment is the best, but you know, if I hadn't come into it later in life, I don't know that that would have been the case. I don't know if I would have needed more hands-on earlier because I came into this when I was, I don't know, maybe around 30 years old. So I'd had some management experience and other things. Um, But I I just learned because I had been micromanaged in previous jobs and that was just something that did not and does not work for me. Tell me what you want done give me some guidelines and parameters, but let me just go do it. 
You know, I mean, you make a very good point. Micromanaging, yes, I agree that is um, generally bad form. There may ever once in a while be a need for it, but and only for a time. That being said, it is the case that at different times in our career, we need different levels of direction. And the more we mature and grow and more experiences we have under our feet, then usually the less the less direction, more just like, you know, what is the mission? What does good look like? You know, what does the boss or the board or whoever want? And then being given the freedom to execute that plan. But it does make sense that, especially if, you, if you're changing careers or you're brand new in a career. I mean, if you had started this role as a 21-year-old, the kind of direction you may have needed to be as accomplished as you are now would have been just different. It would have been very difficult, very difficult for me because I just, like you said, you just gain wisdom and knowledge over the years. It's it's kind of like people that think they want to build a house. Well, you need to live in a few different houses before you probably go out and just build one. So you know what you like, you don't like. It's It's the same with a career. You really just need to get experiences. I mean, my daughter started working at 15 because I'm like, at this point in your life, it's career elimination. Like go do things, figure out what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. Don't assume that you want to be a doctor or a dentist or something without ever having even been in that environment. I'm a big proponent of that. I preach it to my kids. I preach it to everybody. Any kid I come in contact with, like get a job. I mean, work experience is important. Work ethic is important, but also finding out what you'd like and you don't like. I love that career elimination. And it's so true. Uh, one of my best friends in college wanted to be a social worker, went all the way through. And the last part of her degree was, you know, being out in the field and she had done all of the coursework. And this was the last thing, her practicum, mm. she did not like it. She went back to school to become a teacher. And now she's a teacher and I think, oh my word, that is not the time to get a first taste of what this profession is when you're all but done and now you're just in the field. Absolutely. I, I had a friend who thought she wanted to be a nurse. Luckily, she went to job shadow in a surgery and um, let's just say somebody ate and they shouldn't have before they got put to sleep. And she said, you know, the the smell just permeated the room. She said, I turned around, I went out and I never looked back. Like, you know, that, those kinds of things are real. They happen. And I, I'm a big proponent of career elimination. I thought I wanted to uh, be a chiropractor when I first started college. And then I thought, I don't really even like to touch people or be touched. So this is probably <laughs> not the career for me. <laughs> that is so funny. You know, it that is such a great example because that's who, that's how we are. You know, we think this is going to be lovely, but we don't really think about what we're suited for and what the day-to-day nitty-gritty of a job is, or even the the most of what you're going to be doing. As a chiropractor, the most of what you're going to be doing is touching Touching. people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we just always enjoyed going to the chiropractor. And I was a cheerleader, so I had a lot of things that the chiropractor would fix for me. So just naturally, it's like, ooh, I want to do this. And then I was like, no, I don't. What was I thinking? (laughs) That's right. So did you have any jobs early on that were career eliminators for you? Um, Cornfield. I knew that I wanted, I mean, it was the best motivation for me to make sure that college was on my radar or some form of post-secondary education, whatever that looks like. I just knew that 
I wanted to get an education and not be in a cornfield for the rest of my life. Although I value that time, I cherish it because it, it taught me things, but it also taught me to go ahead and buckle down and do well in school so that I could choose a career and not just a job. Yeah. I think that's so valuable what you said, because we learn what we don't want, but we also learn a level of respect, mm-hmm. right? So when you think, I'm sure when you think about where your food is coming from and what it takes and who's doing it, that kind of work gives you a kind of inside empathy that a lot of people don't have. And that's why it's always good to work fast food retail jobs so that the rest of our life, we're going to be going into retail establishments and to have some kind of empathy for what this person is doing. And that that is a legitimate career path. If somebody like the farmer, I don't want to be a farmer. And when, of course, a hundred percent, I love farmers and I'm so thankful that people do that kind of work and dedicate their life to the lives of the community so that we can eat. Yeah, they feed the world and I do love to eat. So, you know, right, right. the farmers. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Lindsay, tell us a little bit about the job and the role that you currently have. Oh, wow. Well, I just tell people when you're in community and economic development and tourism, you have about a mile wide of knowledge and an inch deep. I'm sure you've heard that before, but it's true. Like I know so many things about a lot of things, but I don't consider myself an expert in like an accountant or an attorney, you know, somebody that is specialized in a field. It's kind of like, it's a generalist type position. And interestingly enough, I took the um, five natural strengths or the natural strengths test, I think is what it's called. And like, you get your top five. And my number one was harmony. And I was like, oh, that's so funny. I really don't care if everybody gets along. Well, then I read the description. And what it is, is it's you try to find common ground among people who move the ship in one direction. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's what I do all day, every day. I talk to so many different people and listen to so many different ideas. And instead of grandstanding on your idea or their idea or somebody just trying to rock the boat. Like I'm that person that's trying to find the middle ground. How can we all get along for the greater good of the community? And is that then I suppose how you see your job as a CEO of the chamber and the the local economic development as trying to harmonize all the different ideas and voices in unison so that the community and large will flourish. Absolutely. And break down silos between education, healthcare, workforce development, business. I mean, we all, and agriculture, that was something that our chamber really, back to that point, we weren't really need deep in agriculture, but it is our number one business in this community and it's number one or two in our state. So Agriculture was something that I found was wide open for us to really get engaged with those that are in in farming or anything related to agriculture, ag business, ag tourism. But for the last couple of years, um, George Leake has been our chamber president. Well, he is, you know, assistant director of the Obion County School System, because I really just believe that we have to keep communication flowing because you know, it's what we're doing in the school system is you're making the product, which are the people to go into the jobs and careers in the community. So it's like, 
I think Randy Boyd calls it K to J, kindergarten to job. And how do we make that flow? And how do we make that connection? And how do we get businesses to go into the schools and talk to our students to make them aware of the careers, to be thinking about what's here? And you don't want to have to move away to have a good life. You can stay here and have a career right here and still be close to your family. I love that. In just the next county over where I am in weekly, we have a university and people at UTM, they educate all of West Tennessee and lots of people. And so people around here love their community and they want to stay. And a lot of the question is, well, what am I supposed to do with my university education? What am I supposed to do if I don't have a university education, but I want to be gainfully employed and be able to afford (laughs) the cost of living, which is very high right now. And so that work of of investing in the community so that people can have these jobs and these lives and stay intact, intact communities takes, I love what you've said, both sides, educating young people as to what the opportunities are and then helping the people who are the employers invest in the young people and this sort of reciprocal working together. And as you said, yeah. Yeah, being that that harmony person of seeing this big vision where everybody does have their little silo. You know, I, I noticed that in my own work, I am focused on workplace conflict. Like that is what I'm interested in. But I recognize that's one portion of the lifespan of what's going on in an organization. But you're holding mm-hmm. all of it. You're holding all the different kinds <laughs> of jobs, uh, all the things going on in the market and trying to pull people together. So the big question is, how do you do that? Well, oddly enough, one of the things that in your book on how to be unprofessional, I think I marked my top 12. And um, one of these is number 79 is complain. And I tell people, I say, always have a critical eye of your community because we get so jaded to the things that look bad or are bad. And we kind of just live with them sometimes. But and somebody told me that always have a critical eye like my, my former mentor. But I added to it. But don't just complain about it. Look for a solution. Don't come to me and complain about something unless you have vetted the situation and you have come up with some kind of ideas for improvement or how to move past it. Like we can, it's easy to complain. Anybody can complain. We can complain all day, every day. But what good does it do? All it does is make people not want to be around you if that's all you do. So just, you know, have a critical eye of things, but be realistic. Can we fix it? If we can't, you know, how do we work around it? How do we make it better? But just try to find a way for the improvement to be made if you're going to vocalize something like that. Oh, I absolutely love that because sometimes when people hear don't complain, they hear they're being shut down, they're being minimized and don't rock the boat, don't look outside. But that's the opposite of what you're saying. You're saying, yes, have a critical eye. How are we supposed to improve our communities if we don't really look at what needs improving or what we think is problematic, but don't stop there because the community is made up of you, right? We are the community. It's not some other, it's not government or somebody else is supposed to fix it. It's we, the people, right? So you see the problem. You're the, one of the best persons to work towards a creative solution with others. And that's very empowering. Yes. And I love to, um, I tell people, you know, go volunteer, go do something because it's, it's selfless. 
it's, you know, kind of what we're supposed to do as humans is to help the people around us. But the gratification you get out of accomplishing something when you've helped someone else is an intangible that you can't explain until you experience it. You know, giving of yourself and your time for the greater good brings a lot of internal satisfaction. And also, like I tell people, you might be working elbow to elbow with your next boss, packing a food basket or packing a backpack for food for the programs. I mean, you just don't know. And it's like, always do a good job. Even if somebody's asking you to sweep the floor after you've finished, just do it and do it well, because you don't know who's looking. You don't know who's going to be your next reference. Um, So, you know, don't go in it selfishly thinking I'm going to go in and rub elbows with somebody. I mean, go in it with your heart in the right place for the right reasons. But keep in mind, you never know who's looking and, and who the CEO of a company might be standing next to you somewhere. Absolutely. I think when we think about volunteering, as you said, the the personal gratification that we get from investing in others, it turns out that usually we get more out of it than we put into it. And what we can get out is, as you said, we, you, you, you don't know the contact that you're going to make. We're always networking. And networking sometimes gets a dirty word, but I think it's quite the opposite because the networks we might make are friendships, lifelong bonds. And I mean, what do we want in life, but good quality relationships, whether that's in our family, in our community, with our jobs, with people who our jobs interact with. And so the more we put ourselves out there and invest in others, it is a way to invest in ourselves. And as you said, we don't know and you don't know until you you do it. You don't know what possibilities are out there for you. Mm-hmm. And when when we complain and we stop there, not only is it self-indulgent, but it is a way to become jaded and think there are no solutions. And as soon as we say there are no solutions, there aren't any solutions. No. And sometimes it's a perception and not reality. Sometimes yeah. your complaint is a perception because you're only seeing a piece of the bigger picture. And I've found in management, that's a tough, like I do my best to buffer things from people that work for me because I don't want them to have all the stressors that I have. And then sometimes it comes out and I'm in a, not in a great mood or I'm just really quiet and I need some time by myself. And it's, it's really just because you're trying to buffer that because you know, the perceptions be, oh, she's in a bad mood. And the reality is like, she just got some terrible news about something. So you have to kind of take that into consideration when you do decide to complain or, you know, another thing that I saw in your book, I do it all the time is vent. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm coming in here. I'm shutting the door. It's staying in this office. I just have to say it and get it out and move on. I don't want to say it to anybody else because we see things differently than the rest of the community. So when something comes up and I just need to like get it out of my system. I vent and then move on. Like I'm not looking for any solutions. I'm not looking for confirmation. I'm just, I'm just physically verbalizing it to get it off my chest and out of my head and move on about it. And I, I I don't do it probably as much as I have in the past, but you know, I, I still think it's, we have to have a safe space to be able to do that in our office. Just, I mean, any office, but especially in an office where you kind of technically work for 30,000 people in the whole county. It is really important to process and and take it out of our head so that, as you said, we can process it and move forward. 
which as you, as you're mentioning is very different than gossiping, right? We don't want to gossip about anybody that's pulling people down. It's focusing on the past. I call it the voice of reason. Like I, I'll call my friend and be like, I need you to be my voice of reason. Listen to what just happened. And, you know, she'll say, you're right. Or you need to sleep on it back off, you know, like yeah. you have people around you that you trust so that you can vent and not gossip, as you said, because I've also learned if you don't give gossip, you don't get it. And I'm fine mm-hmm. with that because yeah. I hate gossip and I hate saying things about people. So, you know, having people around you that you can either vent or use it, however you, whatever terminology you want to use around that, you know, you have that person that can really truly be honest with you about situations. Yeah. And as you said, you know, we need perspective. How important is this? Am I, am I exaggerating the importance of this or Mm -hmm. no, this really is important or maybe sometimes it's more important than we see. And if we have those mentors or those people that we trust that we can bring issues to, and they can be a springboard or uh, help us, as you said, the voice of reason. Mm -hmm. I I like that. I like that very much. And Lindsay, so I've known you for a couple of years and I would definitely describe you as a no drama person. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that is one reason why you are so effective in the community. People who stir up drama or everything is a big chore or blown out of proportion doesn't really invite trust. And you're in a high trust position. If people don't trust you, (laughs) they're not going to work with you, work for you, work through you. And you are this liaison to make all of these connections and for things to work in the community and work well. I think one of my probably flaws or weaknesses is not being able to say no to people like when they ask you to do things and to help and I really I do struggle with that but I've learned that over the years the fact that I haven't said no to a lot of people that when I call and ask people for something they're like well if Lindsay's asking I'm doing it you know and it's it's only because of like you said trust like they trust that if I'm asking them for something it's because it's important if it's not important to me I may I may be asking for somebody else or some other reason But, you know, I didn't realize how much of that trust that I've really built up over the years. And then when they say, well, I would do it for you, you know, whatever, like I don't go into it expecting anything out of people. I always find it, you know, a a nice little surprise when they say, well, if you're asking, we'll do it. But it's only because I've I always try to reciprocate or if somebody asks me to do something or, you know, be part of something or call somebody, whatever it might be. I really try my best to help when somebody needs it. So it generally, you know, I know you mentioned karma in your book. Karma can be good and karma can be bad, you know. So I I do try to treat other people the way I would want to be treated, you know, in the work environment. And then, you know, talking about, I look at us like the hub of a bicycle tire with all these spokes that just go out in every direction that, you know, we might want to call silos, whatever, you know, we're just... I'm just in the middle of it all. All I do is really communicate, be a liaison, be a champion, be the devil's advocate, whatever it is that we need to be. But absolutely, you were 100% no drama. I used to tell my daughter, you know, no drama, no drama. And one of her teachers told me one time that she said, the teacher said, save the drama for your mama. She said, I can't. My mama doesn't do drama. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) I just, I don't have the energy for it. My personality is, is pretty cut and dry. My emotional 
wavelengths don't go very high or very low. Like generally, whatever you get one day, you're going to get the next day for the most part. I, I mean, and that can be good and bad because people like upbeat, cheery people. And I'm just not generally that way. I mean, I'm happy and, you know, but you, you kind of, what you see is what you get and you're always going to get kind of the same thing. And, and the world takes all kinds. I mean, the world takes those happy people that are cheery. And those are the people I like to surround myself with, you know, so that they can be the fun and I can be behind the scenes working out details. That's just where I know that I fit in life. And I know where my weaknesses are that I need somebody else to fulfill those areas. I think that's really important point that in leadership, there's all different kinds of leaders and we need all different kinds of leaders because there's all different kinds of people in the world. And when you surround yourself with people who are just like you, that's very limiting. We need a variety of people. We need the introverts, the extroverts, the omniverts. We need all different kinds of people so that we can communicate and resonate with our constituents, which are going to be multifaceted. Yes, very much so. And it's funny that because people that have met me in my career and this job just assume that I'm an extrovert. You talk to teachers and parents of kids that I went to school with and they're like, she was so shy. We didn't even know if she talked most of the time. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's just different. I mean, I, I obviously love my job and love the work that I do. And it makes the talking to people easy and natural it's, it's, I don't even really know how to explain it, but it just, it motivates me to be who I need to be to, to do the best job that I can do. I think that's really true. And it's something that I've found in my profession since I've, uh, since I've switched jobs, it's taken a different kind of set of being out in the public eye, mm -hmm. which is not my natural. I'm not a natural promoter. I'm not a natural, but I believe in what I'm doing. And if I just wait for people to come to me, I'll just be sitting alone in my office. Yes. And it sounds very similar to you because, you know, you're at ribbon cuttings, you're at all of these sorts of events and out in the community. And I imagine it's easier to do those things because it's part of your mission. It makes absolute sense. And that's what you should be doing to be successful at your job. It's not something extra. Right. No, I, I try to incorporate it all in together. And as I said, surround myself with the people that are not like me, that are good at the things that I'm not good at. You know, I know where my skills are and that's just something you learn as you go in life. But like, I like to have people to take personality tests. You know, we do it with our local leadership class, but you know, I've Honestly, I've taken a whole bunch of them over the years, lots of them. And the the, the natural strengths was really good. And um, the five love languages, because there's only five. Right. You know? so <laughs> it's, and, they, and I can pretty well, you know, see how somebody is either an extreme of one or a combination of two, maybe three. Like my son, he's physical touch, like the ultimate snuggler, you know, but he's also words of affirmation because he's always like, I love you, mama. I love you. I love you. You know, and he is complete opposite of me, like physical touch and words of affirmation are at the bottom. So, you know, God gives you what you don't know that you need sometimes. And <laughs> that's right. That's what I got. So um, <laughs> it's, it's just interesting because I didn't, I don't, I don't have to give him a test. I know what it is. So it's, I love knowing what motivates other people and it not for selfish reasons, but just to be able to, you know, let them know that you appreciate them and care about them. And, you know, and empathy has not always been easy for me. That's something that I've had to like be cognizant of and, and 
and do it. And again, doing it for the right reasons, not just to manipulate or anything like that, but to really hone in on that. And I think understanding everybody's um, personalities is it makes empathy easier for me. I absolutely agree because a lot of times we assume other people are just like us, like with mm-hmm. the love languages. And so we love people the way we want to be loved. Yep. And then, and they were like, why don't you feel loved? If someone did that for me, I would yeah. be loved. And when we work with others and in the community, really embracing diversity, I believe is wanting others, inviting others, seeing others and seeing other ways of being in the world as legitimate and valuable even if they aren't the way that we experience or the things that maybe we like, mm-hmm. but recognizing that this is true of the human community. The community, the community of us all is made of a variety of ways of being. And isn't that wonderful? I love it. And I love to learn from other people. I really love older people. I love surrounding myself with older people because I feel like they have the most wisdom of the whatnots to do in the world and whatnot. So, but I love to invest in young people because I really, there were just a few key people that helped me get to where I am because we kind of lived, living in a small town, sometimes you can have that. It's who you know, not what you know. And so I've always just tried to encourage young people or bring them in somehow. And that's why I love being involved in the adult leadership with the adult leadership program and the youth leadership program. And then when we started the 31 under 31 program, that was another reason I'm like, I want to know who the young people are out there. What can we do for them? How can we help them? And like, I am a um, Tennessee promise mentor and a UT promise mentor. And I had a call with my UT promise student yesterday And it was the first time we talked and, you know, she's from Columbia, Tennessee, you know, she's at UT Martin. And I was like, well, do you have any questions for me? And she said, yeah. So, so why are you a mentor? Why, Why are you part of this program? And I said, well, because I had a few people in my life that were really helped me get to the next level. And I just really want to pay it forward. And I see value in young people and, you know, I want to help people go on and find gainful careers in life. And that's pretty much why I do it. But nobody had ever asked me why. So I was a little bit thrown off. Right. <laughs> so Lindsay, when you think about the different work experiences that you've had, can you tell us about something that was difficult for you, maybe a conflict that you faced and how you dealt with it? Oh, I, yeah, obviously life is full of conflicts. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, people make mistakes, but in the, in the best situation, you learn from those mistakes. So I always try to encourage others to not be afraid to make mistakes. Like somebody that I used to work with, she made a mistake that cost the company like six figures. And she told me the story about how it went down and how she did not get in trouble. Like he was like, this is, this is how we learn. And so like that always really stuck with me for early on in my career. And um, also another piece that I read in your book that I learned, I was a cheerleader in school, you know, so I was part of a team, even though I was really shy getting out and performing, I didn't have problems with that because I wasn't having to talk one-on-one with everybody. But our coach told us one time, she said, every single one of you on this team is replaceable. And like that, I don't know why, but as a seventh grader, 
in middle school, I was like, oh, wow. So that's always resonated with me in the, in the work area is I'm replaceable. Everybody is replaceable. So if you ever get to the point where you feel like, oh, well, I've, I've been here 14 years, like they're not going to get rid of me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, they will. So I think at the core, it's humility. You just have to stay humble and be thankful for what you have and, you know, not take it for granted. Don't get, you know, too content with anything. Always be striving to be better personally and always be striving to be better as an organization. So there's there's been conflict over the years. Like the probably one of the biggest things that was a reality for me in one of my career paths was realizing that everybody that comes to work isn't really there to work. And, you know, they don't really teach you those things in school, you know, like role playing or something like that. So, you know, when you're a supervisor and you have somebody that spends seven hours and 59 minutes of the day trying to get out of one minute of work, it's very frustrating. Like you don't know how to handle that. But now I think as a, like we've talked about getting older and learning how to deal with people and what motivates them, I think being able to understand them individually is what motivates them and their personality, I think, you know, could have helped situations like that in the past when, you know, they're there because it's a job. They're not there because it's a career. How do we turn this into more than just something they see as a job? So when you were younger, how did you deal with that as a supervisor with people who weren't doing what they were supposed to do? Well, I mean, in the environment I was in, it was very micromanaged from human resources. So I had to write them up and, you know, write them up for if they clocked in one minute late, three times in a pay period. And, you know, I struggled with that as a supervisor because nine times out of 10, they clocked in after clocked out after five or whatever their scheduled time was. So I understand we all have to get to work and we all have to get to work on time, but like, Sometimes I just felt like there needed to be a little grace and mercy and they're just the black and whiteness of it all really, I struggled with that. And like, there was nothing I could do to change it. I just had to get right with it and really encourage people like, get here on time, please. I don't want to have to do this again. And, you know, I don't want, I never did say this isn't my choice because as a supervisor, it was my job. But again, those are the kinds of things that when I talk about buffering, you just try not to let every little thing that comes down on you get down to the people that are with you. You mean you want to tell them and be honest with them about things, but you don't have to drop every little situation I think on the people. You know, it's interesting because a lot of organizations work this way. They've mechanized people at work. And so they've got these systems ideally, you know, maybe in in some sort of ideal non-person world, this is how we make sure that everybody is treated the same. Maybe it's a democratic value for trying to be kind about it. And mm-hmm. this is the mechanism for when things go wrong, but it ends up treating people like objects and not like people. We've we've mechanized mm-hmm. it where we know if we want to retain people and we want high performers, which of course is good for business and good for the individuals, we have to treat people like individuals. We have to treat people like adults. It doesn't matter if it's a minimum wage job or it's a very high paying CEO kind of job. Every single person deserves to be treated like a person. And if your organization doesn't have time to treat people like people, there is something wrong with the organization and you will continue to hemorrhage talent and money 
because you aren't dealing with what you need to deal with as a business, which is treating people excellently. Yes. And and when I would hire people, inevitably, they would move on to a better paying job within the company, you know, so, and you know, but when I hired people, I always really tried to connect with them in an interview because like you want to work around people that you enjoy being around, obviously. So, you know, it just seemed like I would hire people and then they would get offered a better job somewhere else in the company, which is fine. And I'm, I've, and I'm very transparent with people. Like I never want you to feel like I'm going to be angry if you take a better opportunity somewhere else, because that betters you, that betters us, the community, you know, and, you know, I've had some really great people that have worked for me over the years that have left to move on to different things. And, you know, I'm, I'm sad, obviously, when they leave, but I, that's just something that I'm very open about. Like if something better comes along, do not let me be a factor in. And I've had probably the last, I don't know, three that have left cried when they left because they enjoyed the work environment, but they had a better opportunity, whether it's in the field that they were studying or another family business, something like that. So it's always a sad situation to see people go, but it's selfish if you try to hold them back from something. Yeah, absolutely. And different jobs, given the nature of the job are stepping stone jobs, right? And given their title and that there isn't any place to go up or Mm -hmm. the pay structure. And that is hard to keep on investing in people. But also when you're in a position where those are the kind of people that you manage, that is now a part of your job as recognizing that this for many people isn't going to be a lifelong career, but I'm in the business maybe of mentoring them into the next role. being Being good here, but then going on leaving the world in a better place than you found it. So when I invest in people, hopefully that's a little piece of what I'm able to do in the time that I am I look forward to be with them. Mm-hmm. So when you see conflicts in the community between business owners or different constituents, how do you how do you help bring that harmony so that people can work towards the common good? I ask a lot of questions. A whole lot of questions. I'm a fact finder. I'm analytical. I'm into details. Like that's just my nature. So I think asking questions and listening is the key. I mean, it's the key to any piece of communication, but especially when you've got a contentious situation on hand is like, sometimes people just need to be listened to. Like, you know, and that diffuses the situation. We've had, you know, chamber members that, you know, have were mad about something that happened before I was ever even in this job. And I've apologized for things that had nothing to do with me. I've listened to people vent, you know, I would I just want them to feel heard, you know, and if we can do something to make it better, then I want to do that. Um, so I, I, I think it's just ask questions and listen to why people are feeling or saying or whatever it is, is going on, but try to understand the root of it. And then look, like I said, for the common ground. Well, you know, I may not be able to fix this for you, but what about this? Would this be a workable solution? I really like so many layers of what's going on there, because as we listen, we allow that top layer of emotion to come out because we're human persons and we have emotions. But then the questions can help people go deeper to figure out what their needs are and help them understand what's going on with them, why they're so upset or why they feel betrayed or why they feel 
minimized or whatever it is that's going on that's bringing about this response i think dragging people into the details is a really great way for people to have to articulate to themselves what's going on and that helps them find and help empower them to find what are going to be workable solutions because not only are have they felt listened to and you're helping pull out of them, but they're also partnering with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost like goes going back to what we talked about earlier inventing. Sometimes people just need to get it out. It may not immediately change their thought process, but I think it helps. I think yeah. when you're upset about something, getting it out of your system is a key piece to that. And my personal role that I have found, because I, you talk about holding grudges too. Like I used to be really bad about holding grudges and I'm like, why am I doing this? It only hurts me. Like they don't care how I feel tomorrow, but what we argued about yesterday. So um, I try not to. Now, sometimes when I get really upset or angry or hurt by something, I make myself, I'm like, you got to sleep on this. You need 24 hours because sleep can do so many things for your emotions. Like I know people say, don't go to bed angry, but like, I'm better off going to bed angry than saying something I regret that I can't take back. So I've kind of built some barriers around myself to keep myself from being that person that spouts off at the mouth or shoots back an email or I might type the email up and send it to somebody else, my voice of reason, but I try really hard not to just snap back if at all possible. And that's something that took a lot of years to really be okay with and accept. And and now that I've done it so many times, I know that it works. It may not work for everybody, but it sure does work for me. I mean, and that's the key right there. Finding what works for you. Conflict resolution skills are personal and particular. It's what works for you. It's okay if it does or doesn't work for somebody else at what works for you. And you find out through trial and error, and then it becomes a habit. And now you have these skills because you've practiced them and you see what does work. And so you can rely on those when you're not feeling it in the moment, when you're yes. feeling like I need to tell that person, you know, uh-huh. I, you know, but you have, you have habituated yourself to responding instead of reacting and giving yourself time. I think a lot of times with conflict resolution, we have this sort of binary win, lose it's, it's happening. It's resolved instead of it's a process. Yeah. It's a it's a process of thinking through. I hear a new piece of information. So Lindsay, let me vent. We had this conversation and maybe I, you know, I leave your office and I'm not resolved or it looks like I haven't changed, but it has started the process mm-hmm. of moving me to a new place. And I think we need to allow people to be in process instead of decided all the time. Yeah. And I always try to, when somebody says something and I'm like, or they say something about me and it like will hurt my feelings. I'm like, I've learned to say, well, you know what? There's probably a nugget of truth somewhere in that complaint. So what's the truth in it? Let's, let's look at what the truth is in it. And then you can deal with the rest of it. Because if somebody's complaining, unless they're just a chronic complainer, there probably is something in there that's a truth or that's valid or something but how do you get to it and that's kind of another thing that I try to do is be like what are they really saying and what where's the truth in it you know so I mean that's that's hard that's very hard to do when somebody's just outright complaining because like you said the emotions and the emotional charge that's in the conversation 
So I, I have spouted off and said things in my life, you know, so many times that I'm just, I really try hard not to do that anymore. And it's just, you almost have to bite your tongue in half sometimes, but you're just like, don't do it. You can't take it back. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the thing. Once it's said, it's said. Yeah. And I, I, with personal attacks, I try to implement this. I'm certainly not always good about it, but I, I try to think first that the personal attack is about the person who's saying it. Yeah. You know, it's about their experience. Maybe, I mean, their experience of me, but their experience of the world, how they understand the world and what has happened to them and what is acceptable behavior and what's acceptable to say and, and how they've trained themselves. And I try to think about what's going on with them. And then maybe eventually I get to the mature position that you're at. Okay. What are they really saying about me? What do I, what do I need to look at to myself? But I think my, the way I deal with that is first it's deflection um, is okay. What's going on with them. And once I've tried to figure that out internally, then I might say, okay, all right. What, what, what was true that I can take from that, that they were saying about me? Yeah. I take things so personally and in this job, you can't do that. Like you have to have thick skin and you can't take everything personally, but I do. But then I go in there and I vent and I'm like, we can't take it all personally. (laughs) (laughs) I tell other people, I'm like, who is I saying? Not as I do, but like, it's hard. It's hard to let things go, you know, and there, and you know, there are some people that, you know, they're, they may be complaining or venting or they just say things and it's, it's either uninformed or B, they're misinformed. And then there are the people that are never going to change. And, you know, that's the unfortunate part when I get to that and realize it's not me. I can't do anything about it. I can't fix it. I can't even make them understand or even try to see this from a different angle. And those are the people that you learn to love. And then you just kind of work around them as best you can, because the only person you can control is yourself. First of all, second, I don't want to be controlling anybody, but if I can't, it's like a wood post in the ground. If I can't move it, well, then how do we work around it with keeping it intact and being respectful? But how do we just, you know, we have to just go on. We have to go on. We can't just stop when we encounter that kind of person. Absolutely. I love everything you just said. I mean, that is just so true. There are going to be people in our lives that are those wood posts. And it may not be that they're wood posts forever, but at this current time they are. Mm -hmm. So how do we continue to act towards them with our values, even though we feel this resistance or downright, you know, this, this negativity Mm -hmm. from this person? How do we not grind everything to a halt. And I think a lot of times in organizations or within groups, we people end up acting around everything around that wood post, that person who has stopped and everybody is kowtowing or figuring out how to appease that situation instead of that is one person Mm -hmm. in one position and they get a say, but they get one say Mm -hmm. and it isn't all about them. But they are still, as you said, it's, it's balancing all of that, Keep respecting them as a person, but moving forward. And if they don't want to move forward, how do we still move forward? And yeah. that that is an art, but it's everything that you said, trying to figure out, are they just uninformed and misinformed, staying stuck at this moment in time, assessing all of that and knowing what to do in different situations and, and knowing and getting comfortable with that uncomfortable of, we are going to have those people in our lives. 
Yeah. And it's so hard because when they wear blinders and they don't want to see it from any other angle, it's just disheartening to me when, you know, you know that if they could take them off briefly, like what the greater good could be, you know, yeah, but right. You know, my dad's almost 73 years old and he's set in his ways. And, you know, there are just things about him that I, you know, I wish that he didn't stress so much, but he's done it for 70 years. It's not going to change, you know, but I don't know. I just, I love him. We, we love him, but, you know, he internalizes so many things and I'm just like, you know, dad, it's, it's okay. Like if, if they want to fudge that or lie about that, then they're the ones that have to lay their head down at night, not you, not me. So don't, if, you can't do anything about it, dad. Just you're right. You're right. You know, so I'm just like, don't take it all in. Don't try to bring everything in and internalize it. Yeah. I think that is really, for those of us who who work with a, a wide variety of people, I think it is difficult. I know it's difficult for me as a recovering people pleaser to not take on the emotional responses of others or what I imagine that they are feeling. But a part of respecting individuals is respecting their uh, autonomy, their ability to have their own emotional responses. And I may not want it for them, but that's theirs. And I don't have to carry their burden. I can continue to move forward and try to collaborate and and move forward, but not with the burden of what I perceive somebody else is feeling or experiencing if I've done in good conscience what I know I ought to be doing to be caring for myself and my community. Yeah, absolutely. And it is hard. Like you never get it right and you never get it. You're never going to be perfect at it. You're never going to do it every time. But, you know, it's it's always I just say, you know, we in the business we're in, it's arbitrary community economic development. It's just arbitrary. But we know the greater good is a better quality of life for everybody. So, you know, there are times when we're put in a situation where we have to make a decision and a decision has to be made. So you take in the facts you have. You take in what you think is right and you do what is right. And even if it's wrong, you've done what you can do to lay your head down at night and have a clear conscience. So that's why I'm like, you're going to, we're going to make mistakes because there are just times when we are forced to go ahead and make a decision when we don't have time to gather every single fact. So that's just going to be part of life is making, just make the best decision. Go, go with what you know you can live with regardless of the outcome. Right. Cause we don't know the future and you're making all these plans in early 2020. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And I think it's the same thing with our relationships with people at work because we are in process. We have good days. We have bad days. We have health issues. We have family with health issues. We have all of these you know, economic realities, children, family, all of the stuff going on outside of work. And then we have the stresses of work and clients and getting clients and products and all this that's going on. And I think that we'd all benefit from having grace in one another and that we are in process and we're not going to always get it right. And we're not always going to say the right things. But as you said earlier, if we can have an ounce of humility and really try to think about acting in a way that is for my good, for everybody else's good, and doing the best with what we have at the time, but always trying to do that best. Yes. And humility is just something that I use to ground me a lot because, you know, I'm in this job that is on this pedestal sometimes and people are like, oh, great job, great job. And I'm like, "Eh, it's, it's my job. You know, this is what I should be doing. And 
um, I just, I remember back in like 2010, 11, when I went through Westar, we went over for the team building day at UT Martin and they had this big mat, long mat of all these words. And they wanted you to pick a word and stand by it. You know, it's faith, love, all dependability, all these things. And, you know, I went to humility, like it's kind of just been my thing that I've just hopefully can keep hold of forever because once you humble yourself then it's easy to serve other people it's easy to do those things if you remember that you know it's our job to to take care of each other absolutely so Lindsay, as you look out into the future of the world of work what do you think needs to happen by the time your son is grown and out in the workforce so got a little bit of time here What do you think needs to happen so that everyone is treated with dignity and respect and more than that are encouraged to flourish? Well, I mean, it starts at home, you know, as parents, that's our responsibility to teach our kids how to be respectful and how to stay humble. And then if, you know, not everybody is on the same playing field there. Not everybody has that home life, which is another reason that I like to reach out and work with the Boys and Girls Club and places like that, you know, because those kids may not have somebody at home to love them. And, you know, how can we love other other people that may not have it in their home life and teach them respect? You know, you that goes back to that, you know, treat others as you want to be treated. And I think the more we can be intentional about that as a society, you know, it, I think it spreads. I think joy spreads just as bad as anger can. I think joy can be the same. And, if we can go out and, and, you know, show somebody that we love them, however that looks for the day, then that's, that's what our job is, is to get out there and just generally care about other people. And even when we're busy day to day, you know, going to work, going to games, cleaning house, whatever it might be, you know, you just have to continue to look for ways to invest in other people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. What a fun conversation this has been. Well, good. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I wasn't sure where it was going to go or how it was going to go, but it's been great. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to just share some ideas and thoughts and maybe encourage somebody to go help somebody else or take one nugget of information out of it. Absolutely. Well, take care. All right. See ya. Thank you, Lindsay, so much for being on Conflict Managed. I really enjoyed our conversation. You're always so fun to talk with. And I want to give a shout out to Lindsay and the Obion County Chamber of Commerce. When I changed jobs into this new profession of working with conflict management, Lindsay has been incredibly helpful and warm and engaging and helping me to get involved in my local community. So not only does she preach getting involved, she also does the work, and helps others to get involved as well. Come back. We have new episodes of Conflict Managed every Tuesday. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.